0: All right. So good day, everyone. Welcome to MSACL Connect. And thank you for joining us for a special troubleshooting session titled Getting Going with Mass Spectrometry, Josh Analyzes Peaks. This is the third installment of a four-part series in which Dr. Joshua Hayden will invite attendees to witness in real time his journey bringing mass spec testing to a clinical lab. During this interactive session, attendees are encouraged to help troubleshoot and offer advice as desired. First of all, I'd like to thank our Connect Platinum sponsors, who are Golden West Diagnostics, Thermo Scientific, and Brian Kelly, for their generous contributions that are supporting the provision of this and other educational content on the Connect platform. My name is Amber Harold, and I'll be co-hosting the session today with Chris Harold, who is in the same room with me. Yes, we have these these colors are in the same room and they're awesome. Uh and today our moderator is Nora El Gomdi. Nora's a clinical chemistry chief fellow at University of Louisville Hosp- Hospital. She graduated from Cleveland State University with a PhD in clinical bioanalytical chemistry. I'm sorry, I should have said Dr. Nora Elgomdi in your introduction. Nora, I apologize. Her clinical research interests focus on discovering biomarkers and developing rapid, accurate and cost-effective diagnostic methods. And now I'll hand the floor over to you, Nora.
1: Thank you, Amber. Thank you so much. Um, And thank you, everyone, for finding the time uh, to visit us today. Uh, As Amber said, um, I am a second-year clinical chemistry fellow at the University of Louisville Hospital. Um, and I hope all uh, find this session informative and useful. Our topic today is getting going with mass spectrometry. Uh, Josh analyzes peaks, and our speakers for today is Dr. Joshua Hayden and Dr. Min Yu. Uh, just a little housekeeping uh, before we get uh, into the session. I would like to explain the format first day session, it's an interactive session. So whenever you have a question, please uh, go ahead and write it in the uh, chat box um, and we will answer your question uh, as we go. Uh, also, we have a Q&A session at the end to answer your question. Um, then you can uh, go ahead and take the mic and verbalize your question. A- and we'd like to go through as many as we can. And our speakers for today is uh, Dr. Hayden. He is cur- currently the chief of chemistry at Norton Healthcare in Louisville, Kentucky. He earned his PhD in uh, chemistry from Carnegie um, uh, Mellon University. He conducted postdoctoral research at, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology before completing a two-year clinical chemistry fellowship at the University of Washington and four-year um, assistantship professor at Wiley um, Medical College. Dr. Hayden um, has special expertise developing and overseeing mass spectrometry assays in the clinical laboratory. Uh, our other speaker is Dr. Yu and she is the assistant professor, associate director of clinical chemistry and the director of clinical toxicology laboratory of the department of pathology at and laboratory medicine at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Yu received her PhD degree in molecular and environmental toxicology from University of Wisconsin Medicine. She completed her clinical chemistry fellowship training at the University of Virginia and then became a a, a diplomate of the American Board uh, of the American Board of Clinical Chemistry. Her professional area of interest include laboratory tests, harmonization, and u- utilization, drug of abuse testing, and clinical toxicology. The research focuses on evaluation of biomarkers for disease, diagnosis, and prognosis. Um, Doctor, our speaker, Dr. Hayden and Dr. Yu, today will discuss how to analyze mass spectrometry da- data to help clinicians and laboratorians to evaluate their peaks to ensure the accuracy of their data. And without further delay, um, I'd like to turn the time over to Dr. Hayden and Dr. Yu.
2: All right, well, thank you very much, Nora. And thank you, Min, for agreeing to to be the mentor here. Um, you know, I know I've seen some of your work at previous MSACLs, uh, and I think you'll be a, a great asset here. And thank you all for, for joining us. Um, we are talking about data analysis here, um, but really we're kind of talking about Norton Healthcare's journey, implementing mass spectrometry for uh, comprehensive urine drug screening. Um, So as you may remember from the last session, our our plan was to start with the two different sample prep workflows, uh, go with the non-hydrolysis one first for buprenorphine and then progress to the hydrolysis. And so we had a lot of discussion about chromatography and general troubleshooting. And actually, to be honest with you, I thought that our, our next topic uh, today would be sample preparation, because that seemed to be the, the obvious next step. But we've sort of taken the approach of just go with what's working. And you know we're, we're getting what we feel are, are decent uh, results from buprenorphine. And so we're, we're moving forward with that, which has sort of brought us to the, the data analysis uh, stage. So just to kind of catch some of you up on where we're at, and these are our, our analytes that we'll be looking at, uh, bup and norbupe, as well as the glucuronides. So we don't want to do a hydrolysis here. We actually want to detect all four of these. Um, we've tuned our instruments on those compounds and we, uh, we optimized chromatography, right? Sort of the way that I've already gotten my way for Valentine's day gift is in like, there's a, Plastic bag of some things in my car, right? Um, but I think we're I think we're getting close. Right? We have a Porchel C eighteen uh, with the peaks shown here. Uh, after discussion at the last uh, webinar, we have decided to ignore ethylglucuronide and ethyl sulfate, which we thought we'd put on this method, and we'll put those on another method. So we have a couple columns uh, that we're going to try for those a phenyl hexyl, as well as a ethyl specific one. Uh, from ResTech. So we thought that, that this method chromatography might be adequate for us to move forward with. Right? And so then we optimized our sample prep, right? So that's why this session isn't about sample prep, because our sample prep is really just a dilute and shoot method, right? So we're taking 50 microliters of urine plus 450 microliters of a 25% methanol internal standard solution. Um, so. I put our internal standards at five nanograms per mil. And so I, I put this on here for, for a few reasons. Uh, you know, some of the things I've learned are some of the many ways that this can go wrong, right? So I, I'm trying to target our uh, limit of quantitation down to about two to five nanograms per mil and that's in the non-diluted urine, right? So I wanted to have my internal standard concentration at about 10 times my LOQ, which is why I have it at the at the, the five nanogram per mil range. We also felt pretty good about the internal standards we were using. Um, and so I see a question coming in, so thank you very much for the question, Russ. Um, so, Yes, the labeling on the gluc internal standard, no, excuse me, no, the labeling on the gluc internal standards is not different than the non-glucuronidated ones, right? So I'm showing just the labeling position here for buprenorphine and norbuprenorphine, Um, but I'm fairly confident that when I looked at this, the reason I put these on here only is because the glucuronidated um one isn't uh is labeled in the same spot and so that that seems like maybe that would be a that would be a bad idea. So before I go to Russ's question, I'm gonna I'm gonna pat myself on the back here, right? This is this is MSACL in action. So I, I didn't hesitate to think about what concentration internal standard solution we wanted to use, right? 10 times LOQ. I think that's a a reasonable starting point. I've certainly made plenty of problems where I tried to go too low or too high, and that causes issues. This seems to be a, a sweet spot. And I was pretty happy that I tried to remember what it was like to be a chemist and actually look at the labeling and think, you know, are any of these deuteriums likely to be exchangeable, right? And so, you know, it's unlikely that these deuteriums are going to sort of um, exchange off. You do have this this one here, but that that should be fairly stable. Um, but now the question is coming. Am I sure there isn't conversion? So I'm, I'm wondering if the question is conversion between the glucuronidated and the non-glucuronidated molecule. Is that, is that the question? All right. It's not... Sorry, I'm trying to... to to read here, and my are you, my reading skills are are kind of on par with my with my mass spec skills.
0: What um, happened to your audio, Russ? You don't, know? don't know. Oh, there you Josh
3: go. Was, <laughs> um, I always get a little wary of using internal standards where the deuteration or the modification is in the same place on a labile metabolite, the conceptually labile versus the parent. Uh, Mm. Particularly in the case of the D4 glucuronide, potentially converting to the D4 parent and keeping you biased in the internal standard measure through the loss of the glucuronide that can happen as a function of uh, the pH of the urine, or not, not lacking, you know, not controlling the the properties of the urine specimen, also light and or heat and or something, right? So. I was just asking a question. Have you checked to make sure in real samples and in through your method and over time that you, if you didn't include the D4 buprenorphine, do you see generation in samples or over time of the D4 glucuronide internal standard losing the GLUC and adding to the D4 buprenorphine internal standard signature?
2: So we have not checked. Uh, We will be checking. My, my mass spec tech Kelly now has another thing on her very long to do list. Um, no, it's a great question. We have, you know, the last time we worked with these separately really was when we were tuning the instrument and we've been looking at the mix. Now, I guess it's not entirely true. I looked at the stability of the single internal standards as well as the stability of the uh, mix of them just to see you know do we have to keep our internal standards separate stored at minus 20 and then mix them day of or are they equally stable mixed together um so maybe i could look at that data to see it but it it sounds like we really do need to look see
3: i think it's the implication of the different ways that urine samples can be or can often be preserved and sent to you and Mm. the ph of those composition in those can be rather different. So if you've done the experiments in neat solutions or in, you know, some kind of synthetic urine or something, matrix in your calibrators, whatever your QCs are, I would, that's a great start. But I would be rather concerned about the vast differences in pH in your patient urine specimens and check there by adding just one and see if it doesn't convert to the other, through the process in the plate over time to the duration of how you plan to run the method. I have seen this problem.
2: Yeah. Six, no, mil-
3: six mils of hydrochloric acid into a 24-hour void, right? Ends up being six mils added to 20 mils because somebody does a pour off and then adds six mils of hydrochloric acid to pH zero. I've seen this problem. Not this compound, but I've seen this problem. All right, cheers, mate.
2: Yeah. No, no, it, it's, a, it's a great point, right? Because – it takes you really a a minimal amount of time at the beginning to make sure that you're cautious about your selection of internal standard, uh, where it's um, labeled, as well as just which labels you're choosing. Um, And that's for a method that you're gonna have in place for years, right? So absolutely, it's a a great point that if I'd been thinking this through, having a a different label probably would have been a, a better idea, but we will absolutely check.
3: Yeah, yeah. I did the same for the nor-boop, obviously, and then you may even want to add a third leg and make sure that you don't get conversion of the, where's the, I'm trying to remember the difference structurally. Which one's heavier? It's buprenorphine, right? It's buprenorphine. buprenorphine. Yeah, buprenorphine internal standard to the nor-buprenorphine internal standard Mm -hmm. as well. So there's two paths for potential chemical conversion, which adds to error in the internal standard. So you might just want to check that with real samples of, or or at least samples that have a wide pH range because you may have to put in a pH check with a, I don't know, a bit of pH paper uh, just to be sure. Cheers.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so so that's so that's where we're at so far with our our sample prep internal standard solution, and I, I think this is a great example of you know what we're we're hoping to do here. Obviously, we're going to eventually hope to get to the the discussion of data analysis, but it's really more about what question do you guys have? And then for some of our experts on the phone, I, I see Adams with us again, which is great. You know, just having them comment on on things they've seen wrong. Um, All right. So, so we have our sample prep. So then once I had that, my sort of next steps were mini precision study, five replicates over five days. So the thinking here is, uh, you know, once we know that we can see signal, just how reliably am I detecting that signal and then trying to get a quick and dirty limit of quantitation. Now we often talk about precision studies and limit of quantitation being validation studies. I don't, consider myself in the validation phase yet validation is a lot of work so i'm just sort of seeing is this worth my time to try to validate it right? and of course when we were doing that we ended up having to to calibrate uh, so our our first step was making calibrators and then trying to see how that looks with our calibration curve, right? And so I wanted to blow this up because calibration is another one of those things which I think think I'm maybe trying to understand a little better than choice of column, but I still think that there's a little bit of, I'm not sure I fully understand. So I'm going to explain the approach that I have taken and you guys can tell me what's wrong with it or what I could do better, right? So when I try to do a calibration curve and and what you're seeing here for those not familiar with this is on the left axis is gonna be the relative response. So that's going to be your area counts of your signal over your internal standard. And then on the right, it's actually showing the internal standard response so that you can see how that varies between samples. Now the axis is, is relatively uh, tight. So even though it looks like the internal standards change quite a bit between samples, I wasn't worried, maybe I should be, you know, welcome to, to tell me. Um, and then when we fit the points, the first thing I do is ignore zero. So I just remember learning that, ignore zero when you're fitting a calibration curve. The person who told me that many times before I finally learned it is, is, is on this webinar. So thank you, Roz. Um, so I always ignore zero. And then I try to take the simplest approach, which gives me the most accurate answers without going to something beyond a linear fit. So I only do linear and I start with no weighting. And then, if that doesn't work, I look at 1 over x and I see how that works. And if I have to, I then go to 1 over x squared. But I can't say I've ever really gotten to 1 over x squared. Um, so, right now, we're going with a calibration curve that is linear, ignoring our origin, with a 1 over x weighting. Thoughts, comments? How do you guys approach calibration? So, Josh one question that comes out right away, where do you expect
4: your samples of interest to be? You've got a relative concentration axis there. If you're down on the low end, I'd want to see this in the log scale so we can blow up and figure out how you're fitting. Have you bracketed this appropriately or do you know yet?
2: Yeah, yeah, that that that's a great question, Adam. So absolutely, um, we are looking, our lowest end is that we're targeting, you know, we were hoping for one nanogram per mil, um, but if we get to Two, anywhere between two and five for buprenorphine, nor buprenorphine, we would consider it adequate. And that's based on us looking at what's published and also what kind of data uh, we're seeing in our own patients from our reference laboratory. So yeah, yeah, it's a great question. That kind of the, the lower left is going to be down at that two nanogram per mil. And then the so upper right is going to be at a thousand. So in that case, I'd wanna see a a log scale here
4: just so I know how your fit is working down at that low end because that's really a region of of clinical relevance in these specimens. And you might not care as much for the super high end, right? You care, but the the real, the business is down in the detection at your LOQ or LOD.
2: Yeah, and if we can, you know, I'm comfortable um, doing dilutions, right? So we've also looked at this, what if we only go up to 500 um, and then, you know, have to do a dilution if it's above that. Um, We're not necessarily a a high throughput production lab, right? So I'm comfortable doing that. So we have tried truncating in that upper scale. It didn't really seem to make a difference in terms of, you know, when I get a calibration curve, ignoring those highest concentrations. So that's why we've kept it at the uh, 1000 is the upper limit. I see I see a lot of a lot of great chat going. Uh, yeah, I also want to plot the residuals versus concentration. Absolutely, something that we should we should add there. Yeah. Um, so, gonna, Josh,
5: I want to comment yes. one one thing here. So, when you do the non-hydrolysis uh, for bup and non uh, when you look at your real patient sample, your parent drug concentration might be very low, um, and your glucuronide will be very high. So when you try to define your AMR, you might want to consider lower or cut your parent drug linear range and versus glucuronides might be huge range. So that's what we yeah. saw. Because we try to validate the non-hydrolysis method here. Um, and we found a lot of uh, drugs, if we do non-hydrolysis, the parent drug concentration is minimum.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a great point, um, which I should have, should have started with that, you know, your limits of quantitation, the low and the high end will vary by analyte. It's a great point. And, and if you're looking at the metabolite, you probably don't have to go down as low. Um, but if you're looking and trying to detect parent drugs, you do have to go lower. Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great point. And then my approach to that is always once I get good enough sensitivity you know i would rather set conservative loqs that i know i can hit than I, I don't consider it sort of a, a game to see if i can go lower than somebody else um so if i'm getting good signal um then you know i, I tend to go with that um and i i just yeah. saw a question so why is the is green not fitting the same linear line yeah yeah and i see Tim is responding, thank you. This is awesome. So my goal for this last webinar is that I don't even have to say anything. I can just stand here and sort of like pose and sort of, you know, interesting ways uh, and wait for my modeling career to pick up. Um, but yeah, Tim got it perfectly. I'm, I'm plotting the raw area accounts um, for those. So I, I wouldn't expect them to fit the calibration curve. They should be a straight line across. Uh,
1: Dr. Hayden, I, I see Ross uh, raising his hand, maybe he wants to comment.
3: Yeah, just to comment, you talked about the relative range of uh, parent drug and metabolites true in urine for this pair of compounds, not true in plasma or blood. So, you know, just remember the matrix have a factor related to the relative concentration ranges you may need to build the assay around. You've got love in plasma, phenolvupin, and then you do it for boop, all the way around in urine from necessity based on metabolism and exclusion, not yeah. universal statement.
2: Yeah, so to Min's point, um, you know, in urine, you're gonna look at, you're gonna see a lot more of the, the glucuronide type metabolite versus point in plasma, you need to go a little lower often just cause it's plasma, but also too, you're gonna see sometimes reversed. So yeah, thinking about the sample type you're working with, what you're expecting to see and what you need to see, you know, um, I'm not, really uh convinced that we need to go as low as as we're going for our LOQs but I've learned in my in my short career that providers really don't like to see that less than signal they they like to get a number and they really don't like it if you ask them what they're going to do with that number um so you know we Try to try to accommodate as much as possible, and honestly, we're trying to you know bring this in house and offer the same level of service as best we can to the reference labs So we're trying to reproduce our, our reference labs uh, quantitation limits. So,
5: and also, uh, Josh, um, from the provider side, all they want to know if is that whether their patient um, has been taken suboxone or not, right? So, I think most of time. If you go through this non-hydrolysis pathway, then glucuronides really can tell uh, the the whole story, right? Because uh, the glucuronide, I think, has more of a higher clinical sensitivity because most of the buprenorphine is actually glucuronidated, right? So uh, that's all matters to them. So for the parent drug, I don't think you you need to really stretch yourself to go very low at
2: that point. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, certainly for this drug, as Min was saying, you know, the big thing is the glucuronide. So that's why we're doing this with a non-hydrolysis approach, because we want to be able to detect if people are tampering, adulterating urine, where we wouldn't see much, if any, of the glucuronide and see a huge spike of the buprenorphine, nor buprenorphine, or excuse me, just buprenorphine parent drug. Now we're not adding naloxone, uh, which I know a lot of labs do, um, but we're not doing that. That might be a future improvement we just added that
1: to our panel okay do you want to chime in
2: yeah so josh i do a
4: question you have this fancy very clean mass spectrometer the first question is in what matrix are you doing these calibrations the second is have you broken in the machine to get it nice and dirty to figure out (laughs) what your responses will be after the, the sort of the wedding period or the honeymoon period
2: yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question, right? So, so if you don't mind, I think that that will lead nicely into the next question, right, so um, or the, the next slide. Um, so after we did this, we did sort of a, a mini correlation. I call this like, you know, end of the day, I want something exciting and I also just want a little sanity check. You know, are we getting values we would, you know, expect? So we took a few samples. So now don't take this as my validation cohort, right? These are just a few samples I grabbed. I can't tell you how old they were where we had target values from our reference lab. And you can see our results on the y-axis, our reference lab on the x-axis. One of those points is is wonky obviously, but the overall fit, we have a definite bias, right? And so, you know, the question for me is, does this mean that I need to, to go back to the drawing board? I mean, you know, that's not an acceptable bias. And so I put a little cartoon of of me at my drawing board. Um, But the reason that I feel like this fits very well is because one of the other things that we did is we actually went and we sent out the calibrators that we had made. So to your question, Adam, we were actually just taking random urine and spiking in Cerulean standards to prepare our calibrators. So we were doing our calibrators in authentic matrix. And our calibrators came back from our reference lab where you know we were seeing overall about a 20 some percent bias, where our calibrators were actually lower than we were assigning. So we were thinking it would be a, a value of a thousand nanograms per mil and actually the reference lab was saying it's 750. And so I think that that initial sort of bias that we're seeing is probably more an indication that our our calibrators um, were wrong so even though they were the correct matrix um, us spiking them with with the standards perhaps wasn't uh, giving us the concentration we thought and so obviously the question is you know do we just spend a little more time to optimize right you know I, I tried to keep my pipette volumes reasonable which for me means you know over 10 Um, But absolutely, I could be a lot more reasonable or more accurate, um, take more precautions, look at stability a little better. But this sort of led us to this, you know, conversation about are we really going to go forward with, uh, sorry, um, with trying to make our own calibrators? So we started looking for places we could source our calibrators, right? And so if I can pay somebody an affordable amount of money, recognizing that affordable is a relative term, um, to take on all of that risk and actually prepare our calibrators for us, I would much rather do that. Um, so we we ended up finding uh, UTAC, who's a company who will actually do custom products for you. And they gave us a quote that we felt was very reasonable um, for custom-made calibrators uh, at concentrations, which we were looking for. And so that's our our plan of attack is to just utilize commercial calibrators. Uh, when you look at the cost over the course of a year and the cost that we'll make you know billing these, um, it seemed like a, a definite no-brainer to us. So yeah, so to answer your question, we're using Urine, uh, but I do think that we had some issues with the calibrators and concentrations, and so for us, it just seemed easy to sort of outsource all of that, uh, you know, work and effort of making calibrators. So, but honestly, it took me a while to find people who would just make the calibrators for us. Um, So we were pretty happy to to find someone. Um, And yeah, it's a great point. Oh, please go ahead,
1: Rusty. Have a question.
3: I I just wanted to comment. uh, There was a research paper that was listed in the chat uh, related to fits and linear and quadratic fits from the Bristol group, bristol Group. It's actually a really nice paper. I don't know if we can capture that a little Mm -hmm. later, but if anybody interested, thank you to Christopher. It's a nice paper.
1: Thank you, Christopher.
2: Yeah, I'm just copying that paper now, so.
1: Mm
5: -hmm. Hey, Josh. Yeah. Um, just be curious how much did that cost you to customize your calibrator from UTEC and how many how many compounds are you looking at?
2: yeah, so so I actually reached out to UTEC just to make sure they were aware that I was going to to mention this and wasn't gonna get in trouble and I did promise I wouldn't share price numbers um just because. Okay. You know, if they like you better than me, you'll get a better price. And you know, um it it varies based on things that we can't understand. In my mind, it was very affordable to get five levels of Lyophilized calibrators um and to do that over the the course of a year for all four of the compounds. Um and so yeah, sorry, it's a perfectly valid question. No, I, I wish trust me, I used to share those things and then yeah, I that's
5: fine, because uh, I think we talked about this before. Uh, we actually we customize our QC. We have three levels, of QC. We actually ask UTAC to customize the QC level for us, and we uh, prepare the homemade calibrator. so in that way we have two systems so we can
2: mm-hmm.
5: you know at least have two systems and can check each other.. So.
2: Yeah. And I think that that's another approach and absolutely. um, So, and um, so our calibrators are, we went with lyophilized. um, So we'll be by lyophilized I meant maybe frozen. (laughs) I saw, I saw winds. I was, I thought lyophilized would have better stability. Perhaps yeah. that's not the case. Yeah, that's another
5: thing I want to say, uh, Josh. You probably want to get stability study data from them because uh, we did find some of the stability issue with our serum fentanyl QC from hmm. UTAC. Um,
2: hmm. It's
5: just keep deteriorating. So, yeah, just be careful.
2: Yeah, no, we will certainly have to, to study it. Um, and so they're made up by by weight, which I think is the question about gravimetric dilution. No, not sure I understand the question.
3: All right, so the issue with lyophilized calibrators is a couple of folds. You then have to have a very, very accurate and precise way of bringing them back out of a dried to a solution mm-hmm. form. And gravimetry or a balance is the best way to do that it's the most accurate way we can actually bring uh, dried materials back into suspension then you have the variability of the mixing step and the re-solubilization step so we only use liquid calibrators we use lyophilize qcs but then we have to have very clear preparative steps to again reproducibly and to the best of our ability accurately resuspend those materials I like lyophilized QC materials because they're conceptually much more stable than liquids for many compounds. But then you have to do you do have to be very very careful um, and very precise, even if you're not accurate. Precise over time is another way of thinking about accuracy. Very precise in the way you resuspend those materials for use as either a metrology anchor or a QC um, in your work.
2: Something that would have been helpful to know yesterday, but <laughs> I'm, I'm you got joking. my email. Address,
3: brother. You know where I've You could always call me. I know.
2: No, no. It's these are these are the, the good learning lessons, right? Because we certainly got got both both options, and I think this is the value of the MSACL community, right? Um, when we were even just looking for calibrators, I found myself wishing I was, you know, walking around with a glass of wine, um, checking out the boots, but. Uh, this works, you know, just as well and probably better because we have more people here sharing insight. So, but definitely it brings up an important one, right? Uh, issue. Before yeah, we
1: we'll move on, um, Adam had a question or comment.
4: This is just a really simple comment. I would say I'm a huge fan of gravimetric dilution for everything. And so even when making up your solvents, get a cheap balance. You can put your bottle on, tear it, add 995 grams of water, and then you can do your... Your volumetric addition of your modifiers, but it's much better to do gravimetry wherever possible. So please take that forward. It also is easier and more reproducible
2: hand to hand. So consider that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point, and we are we do have a, a balance set up, so we we do have that, um, but we'll look into whether we can switch out to uh, to frozen.
6: Uh, this is Tim. I just want. I used to work in bioanalysis as Russ did, I think, in the past too, and. A lot of times we can't buy calibrators made up, so we have to make them up by hand, and this, the results that we see here are very typical of a first shot when you make them up in the laboratory. And oftentimes we, we had actually had an elaborate SOP where we had multiple analysts making up multiple um, batches, and we would do this elaborate pairwise comparison to find the one that actually works. So it's actually not that easy to get homemade calibrators to actually work well. Yeah, so I just thought I'd mention that's my experience anyway. So.
2: Yeah, no, that's really good to share because I think some of us beat our heads against the wall thinking, you know, they shouldn't be that hard, right? It's one hundred microliters of A into nine hundred microliters of B, but it, it is challenging to do it accurately and and precisely. Yeah, so I, I, our approach is is trying to to outsource the calibrators. Um, whenever, whenever possible. Um, so that's kind of, you know, where I feel like we're at. And so we're hoping with the buprenorphine assay to now, you know, start to move forward with actually um, beginning the validation, right? Which for me, I think means defining what our procedures are going to be. So, you know, when you evaluate a calibration curve, what do you consider acceptable when you're evaluating a sample? What do you consider acceptable and I'd like to start to try to get this together as we're going through our validation, which I think really, you know, brings up sort of the the huge problem of mass spectrometry, right? I'm just showing um, one day's worth of run with with all of the peaks kind of laid out, right? So we have quantifiers and qualifiers for everything. And it's a massive number of peaks. And I think the thing I'm most excited about with setting up mass spectrometry in a place, as I think I shared before, is that I have an opportunity to not have to deal with bad habits, right? And one of the bad habits, which I've, I've tended to see is this tendency to think you're being more careful if you look at every peak and you have to look at every peak. And, you know, I've seen a lot of folks who like to, 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 find areas where the automatic integrator is wrong and they manually integrate it. And you know, um, those are things which, which I'm happy to be able to set, set up a lab where we don't have those habits to be able to start to say you know, what we need to do are, are set up our methods and our integrators and our quality assurance parameters um, to actually be able to integrate these reliably for us and then focus our time and attention only on those bad peaks, right? So that we go from this bad situation of looking at all the peaks to the, the good situation of actually only looking at the bad peaks, right? So that I only have to worry about them evaluating these. So, you know, as we go about doing that, the particular instrument we're using has uh Quant method you can set up where you can set up these outlier flagging, and you click on this outlier setup tasks, and it brings up way more options than I knew existed, and certainly than I understood. Right? Um, and sorry, I'm I'm moving too fast here. Uh, yeah, so Adam had asked a question. Yeah, yeah. yeah Adam had and, and Nora, please feel free to interrupt me. I know you're always very very polite, but you know um, it's more important. The questions, absolutely. So what is the question from Adam? Um, So
1: I'm just curious. Are you willing to sign up? I'm sorry, go ahead, Adam.
2: No, are you willing to do a sign
4: out under your name without doing a manual review? Obviously, manual integration is bad, but looking at peaks still has some value, at least regulatorily, from at at least the New York side of things. So what's your thought on that? Are you advocating letting the computer triage and figure out where there were problems and then hopping in to fix? Or are you looking at everything? And then modifying your
2: integrator to do a better job, and and it is definitely the latter. So to answer your question, yes, I'm comfortable signing out without looking at every peak. Um, now, whether I should be or not, that's a, that's a question I'm I'm happy to discuss. But I feel like part of our job, especially during validation, is defining you know what are the peaks that we have to look with, and being confident that um, if the systems you've set up, say the peak is good, it is good. Now I recognize that, and and Tim makes a great point that, you know, that's not always an option depending on the lab that you're in, right? and so, and
4: Russ makes a good point too. I mean, there's there's a middle ground. I'm not advocating you should go in with a caliper and pick out every peak. It's just a question of are you looking at the peaks and are you the final say for that sign out. And I think that's an important distinction to make.
2: Yeah, and so so Tim's asking. You know, Clea is okay with it, right? Because I think CLIA was written. You know, when dinosaurs roam the earth, right? So they they're not they don't even know about mass spectrometry. Um, but now what does cap say about it? I'm not aware of any cap requirement that you look at each peak. I don't know, min if you are you know you guys have uh,
5: so so here at UK um, healthcare, our toxicology lab, we receive daily volume about above 100 every day for just a urine drug testing, okay. So if you ask me to, to review every peak before I sign out, uh, I probably would end up just embedding in the lab. I cannot do anything else. Um, besides we have serum drug testing, we have meconium. Uh, so we, I do review every meconium peak uh, just because you know, the consequence of a false positive is really bad. They will ch- take the child away from the parents. So I do review the meconium, but for the urine drug testing, um, I rely upon our mass technologist. So yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I I think um, you know the the manual review. I, I it's not a requirement, right? I think this has come up with CAP, where certainly for chemistry, for instance, you have to have processes to evaluate each sample that goes out, but that doesn't mean you have to review every sample. You can have auto verification rules. You just have to have rules in place that dictate whether or not that sample is okay, right? Um, And so, you know, Russ is mentioning this, you know, sort of human peak review being a fallacy and using 77 rules for each peak in a cent. And so I did want to, Want to mention this, right? You know, there is the possibility of, you know, just I'm calling it outsourcing your outlier flagging, right? Um, there are software and products out there which will allow you to hmm. to implement a lot of these tools. Um, you know, I'm I'm going to stop talking because I've I've never used them, you know, uh, but those I've spoken with really excellent experience. And I can tell you that it's something that, given the importance of this part of releasing results, it absolutely makes sense to me that this might be one of those things that you consider. Um, so I mentioned to, you know, Alex Aitman, uh has done some really nice work, which I first heard about it, at MSACL, looking at doing a, a peak review in data innovations, right? And this is probably an, an older uh, version where he's actually holding things for verification based on certain error codes like is retention time saturation things like that and this is also a good time to just mention right so this is a picture of me and all of my disclosures in my wallet right so like i i mentioned products i've mentioned utac and ascent and i you know di um I just share things because I think that we all have problems and issues in the lab that you can sometimes address with money. Um, This is not me telling you to use any of these things. And I've certainly never been paid to tell you this, which also means if I'm misrepresenting them or they don't work, don't come back and be upset with me. Right. Um, But do we have any folks here actually using the, uh, the ascent program who have thoughts on that? and yes thank you tim there's there's not a lot of lettuce in my wallet yes that is absolutely true i was actually going to put a um a picture of my son with one of his empty bottles just to try to like you know tug at the heartstrings and get you guys to to send me send me some lettuce but the thing is my my son is these like Massive cheeks and this giant belly—he he takes after me. And so you wouldn't look at him and think that he's starving. So it, it didn't didn't make its way into the to the presentation. Um, but no, I, I think that there are probably some some really good approaches to this outlier. Has anybody had experience with with ascent?
1: Uh, Ross, you mentioned that uh, you use the um, ascent, and there's 77 rules for each peak.
4: Yep.
3: I mean, I, if you weren't at ASMS two years ago, you missed the story. I actually built a cent with Randy and I don't take a single penny uh, back in 07 because uh, I ran into the problem we're all in where the data and the number of triangles is overwhelming. Right. It leads us to two philosophical questions. One. Why do we look at peaks? We accept data off auto analyzers, and all you get is a number. Hey, you don't even know what the regression equation is that's used in the calibration system because it's FDA-approved and locked and you can't even see it. So why do we look at peaks? Because we're used to it. Because we don't trust, we literally don't trust the software to draw lines properly. Which gets us to the second philosophical question. If you draw a line, I've said this many times, every time you manually integrate, the FDA kills a kitten. That's on you. That's not on me. Meaning... If you're drawing a line, what you're actually doing is you're saying half of this start this line is noise and half of it is peak. You're visually, in your head, calculating the second differential to start the line and the second differential to end the line. And if you can write down the second differential equations from first principles, draw lines all day. You're doing art appreciation because you don't trust the software. And that's it. But again, why do we look at the peaks? Because we're uh, what? Because we don't trust the software. Because we haven't got rules to tell us peaks in the right place. It overlaps with the internal standard. It has the same asymmetry. The ion ratio is correct. The reference is within or below, uh, below or above the reference interval. I don't trust the noise on the peak. The, the sh- I've seen your first integration of that uh, of your calibrator, Josh, and it's that it's not that so your integration slope at the base of your peaks based on your software is not a straight line based on tailing in the peak and that's using the software and your eyes just go yeah okay it's not flat i'm going to accept it i'm asking again why do we look at peaks we're hooked on it but why let me just get off my soapbox
4: (laughs) no i i so So, Josh, I would say I totally agree with Russ that software machine learning is the way forward on this. That said, I don't think that vendor packages are necessarily sufficient at this point. So there are tools that do this well, but I wouldn't say that every tool is good enough to not require human oversight, at least. And that's a really important distinction. I think Agilent puts stickers on all of their software, not for diagnostic use, not cleared for anything. Don't trust us not to kill kittens directly. And you should be aware of that. So... This is certainly way forward. I think it's always a question of how much lettuce in your wallet you can spend on FTEs versus software. And I've literally seen labs with 20 people sitting in front of thin clients, clicking through manual peak review one by one as fast as data come off the triples. Uh, I think that can be replaced, but I, I also think that just getting rid of the people using the vendor software would lead to tears and dead kittens.
3: People are not good at looking at triangles. I did the exercise, I think you were there, Josh, two years ago in a session. I put up seven chromatograms. I said, pick the outlier, one sample a second. That is the cadence of manual peak review. Nobody can see that, nobody. We aren't that good. Our eyes are the easiest thing to be fooled and yet they're the thing that we trust them. So what do we do? Calibrators, blanks, QCs, uh, any clinical flag high, and then a random selection of unflagged peaks. But it took six months to three years to get there by assay, again, asking all of the review teams using tools like this, tell me why, why you trust this peak, i.e., did I miss a rule for you to look at a good peak and just keep clicking on? Tell me if you didn't get a peak flagged that you didn't trust. No, because they're doing this. So no, stop, stop. Look at the peaks that are not flagged and tell me why you trust that. Or tell me if you don't trust a result or a peak that's picked because then I need to add a new rule. And so when you get to the point of you're looking at 90% of the data that you don't need to look at because the rules flag what you're concerned about. So you have to get there very, very slowly. And in the end, you continue to bolster the rules, whatever, high asymmetry, retention, whatever. And there's, there's tons of ways you can set up a system to call what's good and what's not. Um, And all the while you say, well, I don't trust it. What do you mean you don't trust it? Have you ever found a peak that you've released without touching that was unflagged, i.e. the software said it's good, but did you ever disagree? No. And the rules are working.
2: I think Adam brought up an interesting point about not all the vendor software will meet it. And I know, I mean, you've done some work actually looking at making some of your own tools, right?
5: Yeah, um, so that was when I was a fellow at UVA. Um, Because I think to me, the peak review is really, you can, um, it's comparable to like, uh, people look at imaging that, look at imaging to say, okay, what image this this is. Um, It's a pattern recognition, right? So we do have those parameters that can define a peak. We have the peak width, peak height, symmetry, right? And other thing like retention time, those can define a peak. But if I give you those uh, the same parameter and uh, ask a few people to draw the peak, can really replicate this. So um, I think the, uh, the advantage of using machine learning is actually um, can integrate multiple parameter uh, in like a multi-dimension way. So, um, because if you define a rule, you actually isolate each individual parameter. So you can say, OK, I define ion ratio to be within 25%. OK, and we define the retention time have to be within certain limit. So it's individually. Um, so the machine learning can actually combine all those together. And you look at like a 3D, or if you look at multiple, like four different parameters, it's a 4D structure. So um, I think that's advantage of machine learning. That um, that was, I mean, machine learning has been applied to proteomics um, very successfully. Um, but at the UK, uh, so far I have not implemented this yet because we have some software issues. I tried to transition to the OSMQ software and try to do... Um, many review to label this first, because the labeling part is really time consuming, right? And then once we have label, and then we can train the model to be able to recognize which one is the outlier, which one is good data. Um, so, uh, and the more data you have, the better performance, the machine learning model will be, will be more predictable um so that's that's my plan to apply this once we have um, transition to this new software Um,
4: so josh one i would say one really important thing to do as you're starting out keep data that look bad put them in a special folder and have these as your negative training set because even without convolutional neural networks even without fancy tools you can set up the vendor software it doesn't ship okay, but you can set it up so that it works better and does what you want it to do. And if you find a peak, that's one thing. If you can find a not good peak, that's a far more important task. And so just have a folder. These data aren't that big and put it there.
5: Yeah, do this prospectively, rather than retrospectively it will be much easier because you can label and while you're accumulating your data.
2: Yeah, I, I mean also,
5: I also agree with what Adam said earlier. Um, Even if you have a machine learning model, you still uh, still need the manual review because machine learning model, we try to train a model that can have some false positive. That means can have some false outliers, but with additional manual review, that means we only need to look at these true outliers plus a few additional false outliers. So that will eliminate a lot of actual work. So this is actually comparable to like the pathologist. Um, Machine learning has been applied to the pathology, radiology, to help them to classify whether this is a cancer or non-cancer. But that doesn't mean you you do not need a pathologist for for further confirmation. So yeah, that I totally agree.
1: That's a great, yeah. great point, Dr. Yu. Um, what I understand is like a, a long term process. Um, and maybe in the, like, uh, this long term process, you will find new results that you can specify either um, outlier or you can just put them in the um, acceptance uh, criteria. Uh, there is a, um, a question in the chat for Russ. Where could you look up those 77 rules?
2: Yeah. It, if I could, if I could, in and just say that absolutely. I I want to hear Rob answer to this, but I'm going to be honest else who's feeling a little like this is over your head. It's definitely over my head, right? We're still working on internal standard recovery, ion ratio retention time, relative retention time. Right. And, um, if, if I can get those three down, I'm going to feel pretty good about where we're at, which I'm guessing, Russ, that that might be like 74 of your 77 or three of your your 77. Is that, am I close? Okay, there we go. See, see where, so, so uh, no, it, it's a great question. And, and I know there's a lot of things folks are doing, but seriously, I'm, I'm just trying to start with, you know, really, the the basics, right? Um, you know, what is ion ratio monitoring, right? So I, I think most of us understand this. You you break a molecule, and you can monitor it by monitoring two different transitions, right? And you can look at the peak area of qualifier over the quantifier to get your your ion ratio. Right, but you know, why are we doing this, right? So there's a a really great example in the literature about this, um, you know false positive result, which was due to uh, this u47700, right, which actually was caught because the observed ion ratio was well outside the expected ratio for the benzo. And, you know, one of the things I love about this case is that, you know, this is an example where the utox was positive for benzos, um, you know, and you had sort of this, you know, cross-reactivity, and even mass specs can be wrong. Um, so, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, what, what do we consider acceptable, right? So when I'm, when I'm looking at these ion ratios, is it 20%, is it 40%, you know, how do I start to, to determine these? This is a, from a paper looking at, you know, whether acceptable ion ratios should differ with analyte. Um, do we base it off calibrators, things like that? Like, am I, and I guess, let me just get a, my own little sanity check here. Um, I know that we have men and Ross and Adam and, and folks who are very knowledgeable. Am I the only one who sort of is, is struggling with this? Like, are there others in the audience who are wondering, like, I have absolutely no idea what an acceptable ion ratio is.
3: Yeah, so I actually, sorry, I'll take that one quickly. I was supposed to give a talk at MSACL last year, really unpacking that singular question, just that question. Uh, as an ongoing sort of series. So you're going to have to hold, and I'll do it in person. Um, if we set arbitrary rules, 25, 30, 40, then let's think about what the ranges of error that that still allows you to accept relative to the performance of the test. I'll give you Russ, one other bit. Yeah.
0: Russ, would you give that talk online on Connect instead of waiting for us to be in person?
3: Well, no, because people don't buy me a beer. Maybe, but not soon. I'm really busy. Uh, maybe. Okay. Um, but but standard deviations, um, remember, depend on the curvature of your calibration system. The middle part of the iron ratio can change, and like to IS ratio, signal to noise, thresholds, uh, detector blinding, peak sa- source saturation. The shape of your iron ratio is not generally dead flat, and that was part of what I talked about a couple of years ago. So you actually. Need to, I think you need to think about standard deviations, and the middle part of the ratio doesn't automatically go through the x axis because you get positive and negative iron ratio trends. You have to sort of think about the shape of the iron ratio with your calibration system defining it on a daily basis, if you like. Uh, and then you use standard deviations to flag error because that's statistically more powerful than just setting arbitrary numbers of twenty five, thirty, fifty percent. And so there's a and, and there was a lot to unpack in that very simple question, Josh. So the answer to your question is no. I was supposed to talk last last year, uh, because if you look at the literature, there's nothing there. No,
2: yeah, that, that's that's what's amazing to me, right? So I can um, I can Google search, you know, mass spec validation. And you'll have no limit of, of good and bad advice, um, but there's plenty of, of pages talking about how to actually validate these. But you know, I, I feel like the data review is such an essential part and yet you you Google search that and, and even Google is a little stumped. I um, mean, I think it's such an essential part of making sure you have a high quality assay in clinical practice. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that you know we're still we're trying to figure out what are what are the metrics that we want to be hitting? When should we question a patient sample? Um, and I'd like to have those set up based on our validation data, but also, you know, when we're approaching validation. Um, I don't want to get a sample that looks bad and say, oh yeah, that was outside the ratio. I'd rather say it was outside before it looks bad.
1: Uh, there's a good suggestion from Tim in the chat uh, to go far away from your limit of uh quantitation because there's are gonna be more variability when it comes to ion ratio.
4: So I think uh, Tim and I uh, are going back and forth. Tim, do you wanna hop in? Go I, ahead, I think Danny. the issue is that when you're down near the LLOQ, you're it's going, going to have inherently more variable ratios. And yeah. so you have these data for free. You've done your qual quants on that entire curve. You can just plot across your five fold replicate series what those ratios are and they're gonna fan tail at the bottom so really it's up to you to figure out what you can empirically deal with uh, and it's that may affect your choice of of which qualifier you're using and in fact we talked last time you chatted about keeping all of your qualifiers there until the very last breath and this is one of those criteria where you might find what had been a stinker really shines
2: yeah and i think i mean that brings up One, which I I think is is interesting too, and I know Min and I have have talked about this, is you know, I think all too often I see people who don't have qualifiers on their internal standards and you kind of have this question, you know, does it matter? And I always like to, you know, remember that the internal, an accurate internal standard area is as important to an accurate patient result as an accurate analyte area, right? And so if we're doing this QC, and so I was able to find this one paper from Journal of Analytical Toxicology, which talked about the presence of uh, of an oxycodone metabolite metabolite cross-reacting with the oxycodone D3 internal standard, um, which they could have caught if they'd looked at kind of that that qualifier ion. Um, And so I, I think that that's another good one to remember the qualifier ion ratios aren't just for your analytes, it's actually for your internal standard as well. And then of course, you know, you get into the questions of how many IN ratios should we be should we be looking at? And man, I think you know you had some nice results that it's it's actually, you know, two is is actually more valuable than, than one, which seems kind of trivial, but I, I thought that your data actually showed nicely when you when you looked at it that, that was kind of like a separate quality ratio, if I remember correctly.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So the paper I published, uh, On the archives in pathology, uh, so we did select four top features of those four top variables. Um, One of those is including the internal standard um, iron ratio as well. Yeah, that's the number
1: four.
2: Yeah.
1: I think we have a promise here from Russ to give a talk related to iron ratio. So (laughs) this is recorded, Russ.
3: I'm his evil twin. He's at work. Uh, Men I add a question? When you have three transition ratios, if you get failure from the quantifying transition and qualifier one, quantifying transition and qualifier two, but you get agreement between your qualifier one and qualifier two, do you release results off the qualifier one? Because the ratio of those two qualifiers to each other is consistent with purity where the quantifier is not. Did I make sense of my question? you got three ratios, quantum qual one, quantum qual two fail, but what about when qual one and qual two are successful in terms of iron ratio? Do you result then?
5: Uh, do you do? So uh, I try to see if I understand your question correct. So we look at the iron ratio one, which is qual- one qual- quantifier ratio to the first qualifier, so that's Ratio one, and then we have iron ratio two, which is we have the second qualifier to the quantifier that's the analyte, and we also have internal standard iron ratio, so we only have one qualifier ratio to the quantifier of internal standard.
3: Okay, so what about qual one divided by qual two, or whichever one is the most air quote sensitive? As if that is an independent measure of peak purity, qual two to divided by qual one or the other way around if that passes iron ratio thresholds why wouldn't you just release that
5: can you repeat that i didn't quite get what
3: this is what i need to do this call this this talk i mean literally i think so if you got and it's not you it's me it's my inability to communicate so if you've got a qualifier one and a qualifier two If you ratio those and you get an expected ratio from a pure standard to be matched in those, why not just release the result with one of these creating a quantity? You can set the calibration curve to generate quantity numbers, not just peak areas with QUAL2 or QUAL1 if QUAL1, QUAL2, qual fails.
5: Oh, I didn't look at that (laughs) Yeah, I can look at uh, the data. Yeah. So yeah, so that's another thing about machine learning is uh, the pre-processing of data is very important. Uh, so I remember us we we had this conversation during one of the trip back from Philadelphia to the airport. Uh, you talk about the machine learning part for this mass spec data. We have so many variables, right? So day-to-day basis, we have such big variables, and how do you Assure uh, your data is really not so much of noisy data there. So one thing I do is to normalize your data. So if we have intensity variable, we can normalize to your internal standard peak intensity. And if you are about retention time variable, you can normalize to your internal standard, you get a relative retention time. And also we need to do uh, this robust scalar. So all the data, because they have different units, we also have to make them um, more uniform to be able to fit a model. Um, the, another thing I think machine learning, the good thing about that is it does not be biased by our expertise, expertise experience. Because we may just like think iron ratio is top the utmost important thing but if we just feed the data to the machine learning model and they can based on the results and to pick the most important features for us so yeah but that's a good point i'll I'll go back take a look at this the different things you mentioned
2: i mean i think i think i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna speak up for the silent majority or silent minority um, in the audience, I feel like the nature of how this talk is going is part of why it's so challenging, right? There's, there's folks who understand it at a very high level who are approaching this. And I feel like there's a lot of us down here who are like, just tell me what to monitor and what's acceptable, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, for me, what I'm trying to remember is have your, have your quantum qualifier ions, or your analyte of interest, more than one qualifier, have qualifiers, at least one for your internal standard, monitor your ion ratios, try to set some sort of performance metric for what you should do, flag that. And, you know, related when you're looking at internal standard recoveries, you know, define some level of internal standard that you should see, right? When you you get your internal standard Um, and now, what you do after that, I, I, I don't know. Um, but anyways, I'm, uh, this isn't the right slide to, to, to end on for this point, but I I just want to kind of point out and maybe I'm the only one here, but I feel like the conversation is going way over my head and I'm hoping that someone would have just said 10% and I'd be like, yes, now I know I'm plus or minus 10%. Um, so don't leave me hanging here. Is there anybody else out there who's feeling like, uh, like we're we're still searching for a lot more answers and just getting a little more confused.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, um, majority, including me, of course. Um, that's why we're having this this great talk is to have our collective thoughts to find um, the answer for this, um, you know, problems.
2: Yeah, which is which is of course not to not to say that um, having folks like me and Ross and, and Adam and that aren't. Awesome, right? Because that's what moves our field forward and teaches us what we should be doing. Um, so, yeah, no, it's 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 great conversation. Um, I will say, you know, one of the things we've working on. I'm, I'm switching gears a bit, so please feel free to stop me. Um, the the internal standard, right? I I think that's a really interesting one, right? We talk about this internal standard recoveries, and so I I have this this example. Um, you know, where we're looking at internal standard recoveries with uh, some immunosuppressants, which which I think is a fairly common mass spec assay, and you you have these internal standards which sort of drop down, and then it's you know, what do you actually do when your internal standard area for a sample is well below the expected recovery? And it's interesting because you know. Setting up mass Spec. I've been having some of these conversations with our technologists who were newer to it, and I was trying to explain the value of the internal standard that you know, look, we have this amazing tool that can actually let us know anything we do wrong to the sample will happen wrong to the internal standard. And, you know, if, if we have ion enhancement, ion suppression, if we spill it, if we put coffee in it, all of those things. And, and it's like, you know, the internal standard controls this. And then you say, but also we have to monitor to make sure we get adequate internal standard recovery. And one of them asked me just a very simple question. They said, but if the internal standards controlling for it, what does it matter? What does it matter if the internal standard is half of what I was expecting? you know, isn't that its job? And I feel like the answer to that is no, but I I couldn't tell you why. And, you know, I couldn't tell you what is the level of internal standard, um, 50%, 25%. Is it based on validation data? Is it based on some average of calibrators and QCs? You know, um, some of those things. Yeah. So there, there is a great question, right? Which Russ asks: are you sure IS is added correctly when it deviates? Right. And I think that that's an excellent one, right? So if you see an internal standard, which is almost undetectable or an internal standard, which is double the expected, right? Especially if you have a manual pipetting step, you start to think did someone skip a well or did someone double up on a well? So absolutely those, I think, I think I, uh, I think I understand somewhat well enough, but I absolutely think it underscores the value of monitoring this because you actually detect those errors. So yeah, it's a it's a great point that there are, as Tim's saying, some pipetting errors we can actually detect with these. Um, so absolutely, and you know, never a bad idea to to reextract. Um, but when you get into some of these questions of, you know, thirty percent, um, you know loss or recovery is that is that acceptable is that is that not acceptable I think it's I think it's an interesting question as we as we start to to roll these out and thinking about how do we you know what are the SOPs we should have what are what are levels where I should be flagging samples for review I also have to step back and say you know one of the reasons that we use the instruments we use is because I feel very comfortable with my capacity to input these outlier settings. Now, that doesn't mean that I know all the outlier settings I should be doing. It doesn't mean that it's applying them all like, exactly as me, we might want, but I feel like I am more limited by my own knowledge of what I should be doing than I'm limited by the software tools available to me. Which, you know, so this is something which I I think is a, helpful situation where I know some other folks feel a little more limited in, in some of the, the vendor software, but certainly all the vendors have some, some great options. Uh,
5: um, so I have seen situations, uh, like we have decrease of internal standard for one patient sample. And uh, actually, so we have like over 40 drugs, uh, multi-analyte panel, and we actually have like uh, internal standard it's a mixture, right? So if you think that's like injection problem, so you expect to see the internal standard will be dropped for every analyte. But what I saw is like only one of the analyte that internal standard, it dropped and others are totally fine. So from that, I think that probably less likely is a pipetting issue. Yeah, so that's, that's what I, I always think that will be something is wrong with the matrix.
2: So what did you do with that sample?
5: So you really have to uh, re-extract and if we still say the same thing, we'll just do the further dilution to see if we can dilute out the uh, interference and the matrix effect. So that's the approach. I don't know about other people
2: No, that's a really good suggestion, Uh, not just re-extracting, but actually re-extract, you know, diluting the sample to try to dilute out that matrix. I think that's a, to me, it sounds like a very viable and a process that we could consider implementing if we encounter a sample with a low internal standard. So, Josh, there is
4: a too low, though. On your calibration curve slide, you saw the IS response dropped at your zero or very close to zero that's the opposite happening, right? You have something that's competing with binding for a chelation in your LC or there's something during ionization, your response factor is dropping at that first two points. And so as you dilute down, you've got to be sure that you know what your, what your IS ratios are. And if there's a sort of a, a too clean system or too low now starts to drop you out of linearity. And that's
2: important to remember. And sorry, Nora, I've been Talking over, I see we have some some questions. Um, you know, there's a question about. Uh, yeah, there's a,
1: in the chat, uh, there is a yes. question, uh, I think from Adam.
2: Uh, let me, let me
4: see. We have some about, chatter back
2: and forth the, with Russ and Adam yeah. and Tim. I'm so. seeing, I'm seeing so one they, about um, AI in LCMS. I is think it this a buzzword or really something? Yeah, artificial intelligence, is it a buzzword or is it really something useful and worth investing money and effort into? Do you want to ask that question, Andre?
5: What's the question again? Are those a buzzword, artificial intelligence and machine learning?
2: Yeah, so it sounds like fairly recently, uh, vendors started to include promote deep learning assisted LCMS from HVLC troubleshooting to method development. At its current stage, is this AI and LCMS a buzzword or is it really something useful and worth investing money and effort into?
5: Uh, I definitely familiar. think this is something we can implement on in this area for sure. Because as I said earlier, when we uh, human review those peaks, what are we doing? Where we look at this peak, oh, this peak has problem. We may not need to look at the parameters, individual parameters. So our human eyes are doing pattern recognition. And this is something that machine learning is really good at. So yeah, this is definitely something that machine learning can do. And about those words like artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning. Deep learning is just a a different way of doing machine learning. It involves neural network. Uh, Artificial intelligence is just a big umbrella. Um, so that's just a terminology. But really uh, what it do is to use the knowledge that we already gained, that's a ground truth. okay? If we have the ground truth already, and then we train the model to be, to be able to gain the knowledge from those ground truths and be able to develop something to predict on the future unknown data. So that's what it can do. Uh, Alina, um. uh, yeah, hi, yeah. Um, hi, Hi. A question from a non-chemist, um, how often the uh, analysis that's crucial, like in toxicology that we are talking about, how often it could be complemented with a parallel standing MS that uses a bit something inside of a bit different, so say you have two spectra of the same Two spectra of the same sample at the same time, and you kind of can, you know, subtract from one another. And mm. you know, if this things like some 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 internal standard is suddenly dropping, maybe in the in the other one it won't, and then you can have a little bit more data. Maybe it's a bit sort of faster way to analyze this. Does it at all happen? So that's my question.
2: Yeah. yeah. So so, some, I'm just going to jump in here just cause I feel like I might actually know something here at, a, at we'll start at the base level and then we'll build on with the experts, right? Um, so so the two things I'll say about that, one is, you know in our method, um, we are detecting an interference which we've seen in a few samples. And so following the recommendations from last MSACL webinar we're validating another um, method which actually has just doubled the chromatographic runtime so we are going to try to have something in-house with longer chromatographic runtimes so hopefully resolve some of these interferences so that might be something we could try but you know one of the one of the best things I've learned about this which I think might relate to your question is um, um, Tom out at uh, University of Washington um, he was always really good at saying you know, our instruments can do a lot of things that we almost never use them for. Um, you know, like the first time I was like, oh, we think there might be an interference. It's, Did you do an MS2 scan? You know, and it's like, no, we don't do that. We do dynamic MRM or, you know, something like that. And he's like, well, yeah, you that's what you do, but you can do a lot more with it. And so I do think that um, there are a lot of ways that we can utilize our instruments to further investigate samples, um, to figure out whether or not we trust the result than we typically do, but I don't know how others feel about that statement. Yeah, and one thing we, to consider. Oh, Tim, okay. go ahead.
6: Yeah, I was going to say, uh, when I, some of my customers, I'll tell them if they suspect an interference, is to run in, like an MS1 scan and see what else is in there. Yeah, uh, I'll take that offline. as part of the troubleshooting exercise. It's pretty quick. You just have to depending on your instrument, just reinject it and just acquire from whatever, 50 to 2,000 M over Z and see what else is in there.
4: From a production standpoint, though, I would say this comes back to Russ's concern about what do you do with those data. And if you have three independent machines running three orthogonal chemistries mm-hmm. and you get back discordance, well, is there a bad egg that always gives you back discordant data? Do you just dump that out? Then why not two machines? And if you're done to two so- machines, well, can it be brought down to a single assay? So I think you're doing the right thing, which is trying to build out a good assay for these analytes. Um, You will always run into edge cases, but the goal is really to figure out when you've got to go for reflex, when you've got to go and do something to follow up and hit correctly most of the time, but know when you've got a problem.
1: So um, I see in the chat, Adam, you're mentioning um, a method that you use uh, split mood uh, for volatiles, um, I think.
4: Oh, yeah. this is this is more of just sort of commentary on the fact that you certainly can do multiple analyses on different chemistries and it's commonly mm-hmm. done. So in the case of blood alcohol, police stations run two different column chemistries on GCFID headspace because you can't be sure that retention time is sufficient. So, okay, you do two retention times on two columns. You can always add more data, but think of the cost scaling with that. Think of the data integration issues with that. Um, and again, that's just sort of reinforced the point I made for Amber on
1: recording. Uh, go ahead, Russ, please.
3: Okay, I'll try and walk here slowly. There's a few pieces. Before we went to automated pipetting with very, very clear pressure monitoring to know that we added the internal standard and dispensed it correctly, aspirated and dispensed correctly. So before that, manual internal standard addition, we ended up doing two things adding another internal standard as the last step so either a very small volume or respending in an alternately labeled internal standard to the one that we were adding at the start now if both of those responses go down in that sample the area ratio of the early internal standard and the late internal standard is consistent across the run you know it was an injection or measurement issue or iron suppression issue. But if they're different, you know it was either an addition or recovery issue. So you need another internal standard, or in in Min's example, different internal standards within the same sample that are consistent and then one's down to actually, you need generally other internal standards to triage the, the answer, what do I do? So we actually started off with two internal standards if the ratio of the peak inter- areas of the two internal standards was consistent, even though the chosen internal standard we had at the start is low in that sample, we can have some confidence that actually it was either a sample delivery or a matrix effect issue on the measurement end. And if we have that phenomenon, we also, and we talked about this, I think at a different one of these other ones for you, Josh, take that separation, extend it out. So you reinject, but you extend the gradient portion of that uh, that separation to try and buy yourself some resolution from whatever it is that's creating suppression in your internal standard. That's what we started. That's what we were doing manually when manually adding internal standard to try and at least get a result that made sense to us and solved for one question. But when, you, when your internal standard you had at the start doesn't behave the same as the internal standard that you had that at the end in that questionable sample, then it's re if you, if you really want to be sure, you re-extract it. So we tried to triage what makes sense to make a, a, a reflex to a release. And you had to, we actually had to have more material. Until we had really good controlled pressure monitoring for internal standard delivery, which we use the Hamiltons for, and hundreds of thousands of pressure curves on IS, just to be sure we know when the internal standard has been aspirated and dispensed correctly. I tried not to go too deep and I probably walked there a little too fast. But, um, no, I. So,
1: I, so Russ, after, after you figure out what method you use, like the extraction method, um, the running method, and every, like how to troubleshoot, you end up doing one uh, internal standard at the end, right? It just, the reason you, you were using two internal standards just to figure out this is the best method that's gonna yield more accurate results.
3: No, no. The second, no, not, not quite. Uh, the, second inje- the second internal standard, we were using an inject printer technology from Agilent, which adds picoliters of volumes, which doesn't dilute very precisely. It's a sentinel, like a canary. If, if both the first and the second, and, and the, the first sample plus IS, and then the IS added right at the end in a really small volume, if they're both down in that sample... You can start to suspect it's a measurement problem because I added this right at the end and then injected it. My making sense. So we used it as a canary when we didn't have faith that we were either having delivery issues with manual pipetting or uh, recovery issues. Can we can we do something with the canary? And it was a little canary.
1: It make make more sense. Yes, that's a great tip actually.
3: It's a very expensive way of doing it. Uh, a second internal standard just to tell you if you've got a mass spectrometry problem. Um, but, but it's what we have to have when we start to see scatter like, like just has seen, and particularly you know, in anything where we run pediatric specimens and we just can't go back to the specimen, then you get into a quandary, so welcome.
2: And so there's a question is, uh, would that second IS be specific for each drug or could it be the same for a method that detects many drugs?
3: So it comes back. I think it comes back to the, question, the comment that, that Men said, the fact that Men had other internal standards in that cocktail that were consistent with other samples, and then one that went down pointed to a co-suppression with that particular analyte in its internal standards. So the question is, can you use a generic internal standard or not? You could to determine instrument performance if you like so an injection check with an analog or something like that you could i suppose i mean it just tells you that you've got a problem downstream and again i think the solution that i proposed earlier is to do a extension re-inject count cal- uh, you know some qc you have to validate that you're going to lose height and you're going to lose some sensitivity or reporting limits but uh, an extension of the gradient and re-inject with a sentinel internal standard is not a bad idea we were using a differentially labeled form of the analyte, uh, for the analytes in that panel. It gets you into trouble, though. Multiple things colluting at the same time. with scheduled MRM. You end up starting to capture far too much data, and you can actually get into points across the sampling problems. But that's a whole new level.
1: Yeah. Um, I, had a, I had a problem related to collusion before. And I was troubleshooting everything um, including extraction method, running and all the parameters with the uh, gas chromatography. But uh, the solution that you know, was more beneficial to me is just changing the column. So sometimes it's not even the chemicals that we're dealing with is the actual um, you know, material in the uh, instrument that you need to pay attention to. So the problem was only I needed longer, longer column, the same material, just longer one to give me good, you know, resolution.
3: Exactly. And that's the same in liquid chromatography space is taking the gradient and just extending it three or four times. That's you're buying more resolving power. That's exactly it.
1: So, um I think we answered all the questions in the um chat section. And I don't know, Dr. Hayden, do you have uh, anything to add? Or Dr. Yu?
2: You know, I think uh, what I would just add is that, you know, I think what I'm getting from this is we'll we'll kick off the next session before I run into our, our attempts at sample prep and hydrolysis. Um, talk a bit about the, the data that we gathered for this validation of the dilute and shoot and the metrics we decided on um, that might be a chance for folks to see uh, what not to use as your metrics um, or, you know, a, a starting off point. So I, I think it was a great conversation about some things we need to be thinking about. I think we have some great next steps. And, you know, what I would say is, you know, start of next time, just start with saying these are the, the sort of uh procedures we're putting in place in terms of monitoring ion ratios, internal standard recovery, uh, et cetera. So yeah, I really appreciate everyone's insight here.
1: Great, I mean, um, I think we're still recording. Um, I don't know if Um, there's-
0: Yeah, I'm I'm here. Are you ready for me to sort of bookend this and then we can go into networking time for anyone who'd like to stay on?
1: Yeah, I think think our presenters, uh, you know, they already gave a great talk, very informative session, and we had really great uh, interaction from the uh, participants. This was really beyond what I expected, and I learned a lot from everyone. Thank you so much. So if you um, want to go to the working session, I think we're ready for that.
2: Yeah, and sorry, I'm just going to interrupt. I just saw two questions. One is, is that from you, Russ? A question about our integrated peaks?
1: What what
3: is the
2: question? Yeah. So you, no, you this showed is a is, no. Uh, so you showed a you showed a
3: integrated peak and in, uh, calibrators. I think it was a slide or a two before. No, I went back. Oh, this is there. like watching the Pink Floyd concert. No, no, it was one with the calibrators. Everything's flashing before my eyes. It reminds me of a Floyd concert. It wasn't Here. that one? No, it was one where you call out cal 5. Maybe the next slide, nice and slowly. Keep going. Stop. Go. One more. The other way. There you go. Too far. The back forward one.
1: The 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 next slide, Victor Heding. Yes, this one.
3: Yeah, it, it looked like that. Okay, let me just see. So. As concentration goes up, a lot of software programs, like I said earlier, don't draw a dead straight line like your are for 3 right? And a lot of software systems automatically integrate and it, it sort of comes halfway down the sort of latter part of the slope. So do you, do you look at that? Do you look at how, can cons- because, you know, we're trying to get a generic integration program to deal with peak shapes that do this, right? And then noise that goes up. Like, right? so what do you do when you know you look your eyes? My eyes tell me that's not a dead straight line at the base of that peak.
2: So I can absolutely blow that up for you and have it. I would agree with your eyes. It looks like there is definitely a, a rise there. Um, and while I'm not the best person to talk about it, you know, we're using uh, Agilent's Agile 2. Integrator, um, and that is supposed to be able to correct for some baseline effects, um, but I would not be the best person to comment on it. Um, nor would I, nor would I look at that peak and say there's a problem. Now, so there whether are, there is a problem or not is a separate question. But there, there are two things there that I think come back to what we've discussed a lot. The Agile 2
4: integrator works pretty well when it works, but it's parameterless. You can't twiddle with anything on there. I see a long baseline out to 3.62 minutes. I see this has done a baseline attempt there. You can see sort of a double line. So I'm not sure I would have called that manually. Maybe it's consistent, but you also might find you wanna to switch to a different integrator of which there are a half dozen supplied by Agilent where you can tweak parameters for this. That looks like a, a tangent skim or drop in GC land or classic integration. That doesn't look like you should be letting that go out as far as it does. And This is an intermediate case where maybe you don't have the budget to go for complete machine learning, but you can twiddle parameters such that you know for your separation, for your analyte, what gives you a result you're happy with. And I think that's the intermediate, Josh, you should be shooting for. We'll get to convolutional neural networks and everything machine learning soon, Uh, but we're not there yet, at least as plebeians.
2: Yeah. And then, sorry, to, to answer Adam's question, right? So what are our immediate plans, right? So my immediate plan is to get on the phone with UTAC and see if we can switch to frozen calibrators. Um, that's, that's action item number one. Um, beyond that we have samples set aside. We're going to be going through the actual validation studies. Um, so we're utilizing, I, I practice in New York state. I still have my, my COQ from there. I think that they're, um, LDT submission at Wadsworth is is a pretty good starting point for experiments to do. So we're sort of using that as our as our basis to actually do our validation studies over the coming weeks. We have added fentanyl to our method um, because, and yes, that's a good that's a good point. Even with frozen calibrators, we uh, we we still need to be working accurately, <laughs> precisely. Yes. Um, But yeah, so those are immediate steps. I will mention that we've added fentanyl and norfentanyl, and we're going to look at adding methadone and EDDP to this because those are all ones that we wouldn't want to put through the hydrolysis. Uh, We have the fentanyl added, and the fentanyl worked – I I don't know how else to say it. It was like the instrument was designed for fentanyl or maybe fentanyl just flies really well. So we're, we're probably going to have data on fentanyl for the the next talk too, just because it's, it's looking so good. So the next step is to go through the validation studies for this, so we can start running and then also trying to play around with the hydrolysis approach.
6: Yeah. Fentanyl falls apart pretty well in a tandem. Okay. You got some good data there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I mass spec tech Kelly looked at me and, you know, she didn't even know what a mass spec was uh, six months ago. Um, And she said, this shouldn't have been that easy, should it? And I was like, oh, I don't know, but we'll take it. So we'll see, I'm sure we'll hit bumps in the road, but so far it's gone well for that one. So that's the the plan.
0: All All right. uh... So, Amber, you want to you want to take it from here? Yeah, I'll do a little bookend, and then uh, we'll turn off the recording. And if anybody wants to say anything they didn't want recorded, or wants to introduce themselves, we'll we'll stay on for a little bit longer. Uh, so, thank you to Josh and Min for sharing with us today, and to my co-host Chris, who has been mostly pulled away on flooring responsibilities, and also our moderator Nora. So check the MSACL website for more details. And uh, if you'd like to stay on a bit, we're here for you. To everyone else, please stay safe and stay connected.